Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. And this special episode is produced in partnership with the Friedrich Ebert Foundation, or FES. Today, we're talking once again about the disarray in the Horn of Africa, and specifically this time its effect on the institution that is supposed to bring the region together, the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, better known as EGAD. EGAD is where the heads of state of Ethiopia, Kenya, Sudan, South Sudan, Uganda, Somalia, and Djibouti meet to discuss regional affairs. While it technically oversees the peace process in South Sudan, EGAD has been largely absent as other political crises have rippled through the region, laying in question the political project of forging a more united and stable Horn of Africa. To discuss this crumbling regional order and what the future holds, we have Charles Onyago Obo, a veteran Ugandan journalist, Betty Kari Marungi, a Kenyan lawyer with vast regional experience, and Harry Verhoeven, an author and scholar at Columbia University. Thanks all for for joining us today. Charles, I'm going to start this one off with you. Um, Can you just help give us some context at just the uh, level of disarray right now we're seeing across the region? Of course, we talk about it a lot on this podcast, but just how would you you describe this in historical perspective, what we're watching right now? The way Africa works, we tend to have generational changes. You know, every generation we have this turmoil you know we had uh, you know generational changes in the 90s uh, you know kenya democratized tanzania did the same the dag was overthrown in ethiopia we had the genocide uganda you know Museveni came to power there was a period of stabilization so we we got the reward for that there was a dividend but in many ways the dividend is beginning to wear off and uh, Ethiopia, which is really an empire, which is unraveling, probably represents the worst of it. Thanks, Charles. Yes, it seems like this region goes through these cycles, like you said, almost almost generationally in terms of upheaval, and, and we're, we're facing a really big one right now. Um, Betty, I'm going to turn to you right now. I mean, I think when a region faces so many problems, if international politics <laughs> followed an actual textbook, the way this is supposed to work is that, you know, EGAD or the African Union uh, would, would step in to sort of help resolve and mediate these disputes. Um, but of course, we've seen very little of EGAD, which basically can't meet as heads of state right now as as regional leaders. Um, and the African Union has also struggled, you know, in Ethiopia and Sudan. I'm just wondering what you think has, has gone wrong with that side of things in terms of the attempts to intervene and help manage some of these issues. Is it fair to actually expect uh, some of these multilateral institutions to fare any better? Well, you know, just picking up from uh, Charles's comments around generational changes, I think this particular wave of change that we are beginning to see is also representative of a certain kind of failure in multilateralism, something that uh, we have to contend with in analyzing the trajectory of the instability that we are seeing in the Horn. The Africa Union, I think, stands in, in a you know, relatively better position than uh, the regional economic commissions, you know, IGAD or like the East African community. We have seen really very, very little leadership in IGAD, for example. And this, this, there are many reasons for this. First of all, you know, I think you all know that, uh, 
it has been very difficult, if not impossible. I can't remember the last time IGAD convened its highest body in an ordinary summit, and that's where they make the decisions. What they have been doing is convening extraordinary summits to deal with particular problems. Uh, they haven't, to my knowledge, and I could be wrong, convened an extraordinary summit on Ethiopia. And this is because Ethiopia really has been the leader of IGAD. And I think nobody wants to, to, to step on their toes. As we heard just two days ago, I think uh, the IGAD executive secretary was delivering his state of the IGAD report uh, when he talked about uh, being careful not to overstep uh, their mandate uh, and, and to be sure that they are respecting the principle of non-interference uh, and respecting the sovereignty of, uh, of Ethiopia, while at the same time expressing uh, deep distress and worry that this was uh, heading in the wrong direction. Thanks, Betty. Harry, I, I think it might be useful if we take even a step further back and talk about, you know, the regional order, regional relations um, that existed uh, before all this turmoil of the last few years even started. So so can you uh, help us uh, step back historically a little bit? Well, thanks, Alan. I, I think in order to indeed appreciate EGAD, both its ambitions and the limitations that we we're just talking about, it's indeed important to remember that this organization was set up in the mid to late 1980s, largely at the urging actually of a number of UN officials at a time, a bit like today, if you like, of heightened regional polarization between different strong governments. You know, at the time, of course, Mengusta Haile Mariam in Ethiopia, Jafar Nimeri, and then uh, the transitional government in Sudan, of course, Syed Barre in Somalia. And the ambition really was limited, to, as, as you may recall, to drought and desertification, trying to incrementally improve the way the states in this very fraught, fractured, fragmented region might work together and hoping that from these kind of smaller issues, one day they may, may scale up to more meaningful forms of cooperation. Now, during the 1990s, you know, there was a brief moment of, again, of, of hope that such a grander political vision, indeed one of economic integration, may indeed be in the offing, especially under the leadership of, I mean, you just mentioned the Mellas, and Isaias in Eritrea, uh, back then, of course, very close in those 1990s, um, there was the belief in a kind of greater horn of Africa and that a new form of integration away from the old mode of the OAU, the Organization for African Unity, um, might emerge from a group of like-minded movements and like-minded leaders, many of which had you know, leftist inclinations and certainly a leftist pedigree in terms of their ideological proclivities. Um, now that, um, unfortunately, for those who believed in this vision, began to unravel indeed with, in 1998 with the war of brothers between Ethiopia and Eritrea. And thereafter, IGAD essentially became a kind of institution that was meant to at least help shield the region from the worst excesses, if you like, of renewed regional polarization. That is to say, it tried, especially in Sudan and Somalia, to A, limit the intervention from potential outside actors, and it's mostly to think about Libya, Egypt, maybe Gulf states, who each had their own kind of ideas as to what peace and regional reconciliation in places like Sudan and like Somalia uh, was to look like. But at least from the kind of standpoint of IGAD as a kind of buffer to try to shield the region, as I said, from the worst, from the worst consequences of regional polarization, it might not have done such a, such a bad job. And I think that that's the lesson we're once again learning today at a time when IGAD is functionally brain dead, 
um, where it has great trouble meeting, where indeed its biggest and most important member state is being torn apart by this horrific civil war, where there's, of course, major, major tensions between Sudan and Ethiopia around the border and around many other issues, and where there's such profound distrust. Again, the situation of a couple of years ago, where you had this weak institution, but nonetheless a place where leaders could meet and perhaps mitigate or ease some of the distrust that existed. It might not have been such a bad state of affairs, and I think that this is what many international diplomats feel too, uh, having poured a lot of money into EGAD, not because it was anywhere near perfect or even near good, but at least it was not what we have right now, which feels a lot more like 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 anarchy, um, and that's particularly troubling. Mm. Yeah, and so uh, EGAD there as an institution that in many ways kind of helped prevent the worst, I think, in terms of uh, interstate and proxy conflict, perhaps, but was very much forged, um, as you say, from Addis Ababa by Mele Sinawi. Um, I mean, just to move this conversation on a bit before we circle back to EGAD specifically, obviously, the, the major the major event happening right now in the region is the civil war in Ethiopia. Charles, uh, how do regional leaders view the war in Ethiopia? You know, all these countries, you know, Uganda, uh, Kenya, they are in Amazon, and, you know, they have a pact around how to to engage in that situation, and they're involved in very delicate negotiations around exit and what happens. So you have these arrangements in which they are already locked, and they find that, you know, doing anything to put pressure on Addis jeopardizes those bigger deals. Kenya has made a lot of investments in infrastructure, and it was looking at Ethiopia as uh, this huge, huge uh, market for it. So it finds itself really not willing to push too hard because it has those other interests. In many ways, it's a result of something good, that because you have those very intricate relationships and networks of economic and uh, and other political arrangements which have developed at multiple levels, it makes it very difficult for them to act aggressively or more forcefully with Addis Ababa. There's too much to lose on other fronts. Just on this point uh, that Charles is making, I think also the fact that the, the, the chairship of IGAD right now is with Sudan, which finds itself also in, in some trouble, is a factor. I just wanted to ask, Charles, whether any talk can be made of the quiet diplomacy that's been going on between Kenya's president and Abe on this whole question of, uh, you know, resolving this conflict in Ethiopia? Yes, you know, uh, there, there was, I mean, for example, the President Museveni has uh, tried to get involved with very mixed results. And Uhuru, because, you know, I think, I think Kenya tends to do these things a bit more quietly. And Kenya has, uh, as we saw in Southern Sudan, it has a few more levers. And, you know, sometimes it uses these levers to some good, uh, you know, the, the way it, you know, it uses its, its banking institutions and other financial instruments to get some kind of movement on South Sudan. But one of the things is that you then actually begin to see that this quiet diplomacy, you know, that what can it actually produce? I mean, what kind of results? So even if it is there, it's just, just within what is happening in Ethiopia, it becomes very difficult to see what possible outcome 
it would result in because if the two sides have locked themselves in a situation which is almost impervious to ordinary diplomatic uh, you know intervention thanks charles harry i'm going to turn back over to you um i'm just wondering you walked us through that history of you know largely ethiopia's foreign policy to a degree in the region and, and kind of how that affected things how, how do you see this sort of emerging you know, almost an emerging vacuum that the war in Ethiopia and the power struggle there uh, has left the region. How, how has that affected from your conversations, you know, how regional states are, are forced to sort of deal with their own sort of basic security and, and politics? Well, it's a, good, it's a good question, Alan, because, you know, for, for many years indeed, especially on the Menlis, but even on the, the Haile Mariam years, Ethiopia's outsized dominance in the region would often, of course, scare its neighbors and many of its neighbors would often quietly, privately complain about Ethiopia's overbearing attitudes, whether vis-a-vis Eritrea, whether on you know, certain sensitivity with the Nile, and, and therefore Sudan and Egypt, um, whether, of course, in terms of the role it plays in Djibouti or in Somalia. But now that we're in a, in a very different situation where you know, Ethiopia is, has been so preoccupied with its internal worries for many years, even preceding, of course, to coming to power of Abiy Ahmed, and where it's actually exporting instability in the form of refugees, of course, weapon flows, um, the fallout, the spillover of extreme forms of nationalism that we see in various parts of Ethiopia, and the way they affect regional security dynamics. Um, one sees the flip side of that, and I think many national security officials and diplomats in the region thereby are now coming to the conclusion, as I said earlier, that, you know, the, the, the situation um, a number of years ago was not ideal um, and certainly posed major constraints on the ability of certain states and certain actors to pursue their goals. But this is far worse. And, you know, as Charles and Betty were just referring to, the problem, of course, from a regional mediation viewpoint is is double. On the one hand, you have the sheer complexity of the problem. I mean, again, it's important that we don't reduce Ethiopia's problems to the Tigray war or even the conflict to the Tigray war. As Ethiopians themselves know very well, this goes far beyond it. And just hinting at that is such a daunting task, such a complex task, that no individual foreign service in the world uh, or even a com- number of combined foreign services in, in Africa, for example, would be able to to manage. I mean, the number of actors is simply unknown. There's huge coordination problems. For many regions of the country, I think foreign observers simply do not understand what's actually happening. So that you know, complexity of the task, of course, is a, is a first deterrent. And the second one, of course, is that you know, for a country like whether it's Kenya or Uganda to actually try to steer a settlement inside Ethiopia much bigger and with which historically, let's say, relations have been ambivalent and there certainly has been a sense of of profound regional competition, that makes it even more difficult. And I think that's another reason why many states worried as they are about this are quite apprehensive about wading in getting burned, making enemies. It's a lot easier to try to stay quiet and say, well, this is terrible, but at least we're not going to further irritate important parties or those who may one day come out on top of this, which is, of course, a risk you take if you do decide to mediate. And you know, it's instructive that Charles indeed made the, the, analog, the analogy with South Sudan and the, 
leverage or limited leverage that some Kenyan actors enjoyed over Southern Sudanese actors. Well, in the case of Ethiopia, of course, we're talking completely different situation, of course, completely different sums of money, completely different political interests, completely different extroverted nature of the political economy. So all of these, these factors combined make it so hard, and which means that everybody kind of agrees on the diagnosis, which is that it's bad and it's existentially bad, but not quite sure how to chart a way forward and looking to other actors for leadership or at least some kind of initiative. So, so Betty, I'm, I'm going to go back over to you. EGAD, you know, as an institution, um, you know, was fairly active in places like South Sudan and Somalia and and still technically is. Um, you've, you've seen that, you know, up close, um, I think, especially in South Sudan. I'm just wondering what, what effect all this regional turmoil has had in some of the peace processes um, and political processes that, that EGAD was involved with, um, you know, in, in some of the, the states that are perhaps not the regional big boys, if you will. In terms of um, how this has affected EGAD's role making progress or in monitoring uh, progress on the implementation of uh, the revitalized peace agreement that they helped negotiate uh, in 2017 and on which Sudan took the lead. And of course, um, Ethiopia played a key role because obviously Ethiopia was the host of the revitalized talks. I think what has happened with the with really the lack of uh, what I would call leadership at the very top is that they've dropped the ball. They've dropped the ball on the security chapter, which is uh, on the unification of uh, forces, uh, military forces in um, in South Sudan. And the reason for this, I think we can we can all uh, conclude, is because this is a political question. And and I think this is the missing link even in this conversation that we're having. What are the political dynamics that are, cre- are, are creating this lethargy and almost non-action on important uh, aspects of, of what EGAD says it is about, which is around promoting inclusive governance, which is uh, ensuring stability and uh, seeing through its various negotiated uh, Agreements and the lack of interest uh, is evident not just by the kind of communiques that they, they they churn out every so often, but the lack of follow through. For example, uh, on the important uh, question of uh, reforms of the judiciary, IGAD has been the body that was to create the judicial review committee, and this has been pending since. Um, since the new parliament uh, was uh, came into place in uh, in Juba, Charles, I'm going to go back to you. I want to um, I want to uh, sort of step off of uh, something that that Harry said, which is that you know going back in the history, one of the reasons EGAD was was formed was because regional leaders wanted a way to try to protect themselves from outside uh, influence and outside actors. Are we missing a bigger picture here, given how many? actors are are coming into the picture, especially uh, perhaps from across the Red Sea, so to speak, uh, the Gulf countries, Turkey, etc. Are we is, is is that perhaps even a bigger picture, the, the rising role of those countries than than even some of these internal regional politics that we've been discussing? Yeah, absolutely. And and in fact, you know, I just I mean to to go from the start, I think I think probably the the biggest mistake they did was uh, to refashion the EGAD to to look beyond desertification and drought. Huh? 
I think if they had if they had stuck to the to the limited mandate, they might have uh, achieved more. I you know I remember in uh, in twenty I think uh, seventeen, uh, Betty and I were at a meeting in uh, in Addis Ababa, and this exact question came up, and uh, and the argument was that given the whole regional thing and you know the the interaction of the Gulf states and you know the Arabian Peninsula and the involvement in the Horn, that actually we had reached a point where for eager to get anywhere, it had to be an organization which includes the Gulf states. If you kind of look at what is the next step, I think that we are at a point where it might be unpalatable, you know, unpalatable, but we might probably be able to make a bit of progress if uh, there is a lot more engagement with the Gulf players, because in many ways, uh, you know, Turkey, the United Arab Emirates, these are the fellows who are calling, uh, you know, the shots in the horn. But do horn countries need to somehow band together, you know, in in a way that EGAD was originally supposed to function, where at least at the top level, where the heads of state could come together and agree for horn golf discussions to go well? I mean, do you see a path... Do you see any path forward that doesn't involve, you know, some sort of at least collective action from the from the Horn of Africa leaders themselves? Uh, no, I you know I don't see it. But 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 then there is this view, which I problem the other one who holds that really I think that uh, that you know the deeper problem why they can't do that is that these are essentially uh, undemocratic. That they really have also to uh, to address the issue of democracy because I think that. Uh, the political arrangements in which the countries in the Horn are courted makes it virtually impossible. So it's also a democratization um, issue because without that, um, you know, the leaders of themselves, I don't think, can do much. Mm. Yeah, Harry, um, I wanted to toss one back to you, which is, you know, do you think this state of anarchy, as you described it, can it can it last? Is that a sort of stable arrangement of itself? Or do you think it's inevitable that we'll see uh, either EGAD be reconstituted or something sort of take its place that that fits the underlying politics more? Or can the state of anarchy uh, last uh, for some time? I regret to say that from a reading of history, this situation, however unstable it may be for ordinary people and for decision makers, uh, but that, that state of affairs can last for a very long time if, if history is, a, is any guide. The highly extractive nature um, of many of the states, the way in which the exclusion, uh, the marginalization, the repression of large swathes of the population has for many generations been entirely normalized. Um, the very way in which many of these states were built um, through European colonialism, but as you know, also through Egyptian and Ethiopian imperialisms. And so um, the takeaway from that is that, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll obviously have to continue to look and we'll have to pre- proactively try to uh, build a different type of uh, political order, both regionally as well as domestically, um, because just hoping that, you know, things will... Um, will somehow evolve to a more stable equilibrium, stable defined as um, hopefully less violent and more consensual, again, both regionally and domestically, I think is is something that certainly doesn't take care of its of its own. Um, and I think that that's the, the troubling part. And this is before we even get to the question indeed of various forms of external, extra-regional intervention, um, adding oil to the fire, um, 
whether that is from the Gulf, whether that is from the West, whether that is from certain Asian partners who wittingly or unwittingly in many ways may be making some of these problems worse. Um, again, to you briefly asked about the Gulf, and you were discussing it with Charles. Um, you know, whilst uh, Middle Eastern involvement a, in various Horn of Africa states, A, is not new, and B, is certainly not the sole factor in the last six or seven years uh, in causing or furthering regional polarization, it definitely is a major factor. And, you know, you're right to hint that on the one hand, the states in the region, at least hypothetically, uh, have an interest in some kind of collective or kind of joint policy uh, vis-a-vis Gulf actors. And as you know, EGAD has tried that as a point of special envoy, as a point of num- as has adopted a number of declarations around this. Uh, but in reality, of course, each of the states has sometimes an individual interest to nonetheless cut bilateral deals, uh, sometimes with Gulf states, sometimes even within in, with, with individuals or certain camps within those within those states. And that, of course, undermines the ability to undertake any kind of meaningful collective action. Ethiopia, ironically, again, before Abiy was one of the great, um, we tried to spearhead that and, and was, was, the, was, the, was, the, was the regional force that had urged this the most, in part because of historical Ethiopian distrust of anything that reeks of Middle Eastern involvement in the Horn and the ways in which that may curtail Ethiopian influence or Ethiopian hegemony, if you like. Um, but after the, the switch within the EPRDF from Haile Mariam, uh, and and the TPLF faction to to Abbey, that policy has all but disappeared. And today there is no there is no pretense even of some kind of coherent framework to deal uh, with that particular form of extra regional intervention or with other forms of extra regional intervention. Again, I don't want to want to vilify the Gulf here. Other forms of of intervention from from outside the region have also been experienced as as, as highly destabilizing and certainly not always contributing. Um, in that sense, Igad is of course, as I said, a very very long way off uh, mitigating any any of that. All right. Thanks, Harry. So I'm going to go back around to everyone once more and just ask a, a question about uh, perhaps the, the, the best way forward on all of this. Um, so, so Betty, I'm, I'm just wondering, um, what would you like uh, not just regional leaders, but perhaps even African leaders at the African Union level um, or other levels, um, what would you like them to do to improve this situation, um, you know, so that Africa doesn't lose the Horn of Africa to the Middle East, as is almost being implied in some of this conversation? All of these EGAD countries, except Ethiopia and Eritrea, I think are also members of other regional economic blocks. And so I think it's not really about one regional block that is EGAD pulling its socks up and, and really living up to the, the promise it uh, set itself out to in terms of uh, having as its main pillar the question of peace, security, and stability in the region. I think this falls as a responsibility for all of them, all the RECs and the African Union itself. Uh, in terms of providing that uh, leadership. But I, I'm not being naive when I say that over the past couple of years, we have seen a blind eye turned on the kind of situations that do create uh, the interstate kind of conflicts. We have seen the reemergence of coups, of undemocratic governance, uh, with the uh, the policy organizations turning a blind eye to all of these uh, uh, events that are happening on the continent. Uh, we have seen elections uh, become 
less free and fair, if ever they could have been described as being uh, free and fair. We talk about successful elections, the same EGAD issued statements uh, commending uh, Uganda for uh, fantastic elections, commending uh, Somalia for great elections. Uh, we will see uh, these types of statements continue to come from this body, which should itself be uh, laying guidelines uh, and actually critiquing uh, the, the, the very manner in which these elections are conducted. There's a point at which I think we have come to where uh, serious decisions and serious reflection has to be made by uh, uh, all the leaders in their own countries individually as regional blocs and at the Africa Union, that we are actually seeing a decline uh, in democratic governance. Time for reflection is now that these uh, regional economic uh, uh, blocs, at least for the Horn of Africa, uh, need a serious re-examination as we consider the fracturing, because that's what is happening. The countries are fracturing and we can see it. Hmm. Th- thanks, Betty. Um, so, Harry, um, I'm going to go next to you. Uh, so I'm just wondering if you see any path forward uh, towards an arrangement that would maybe, you know, constrain or contain this disorder a bit more, so to speak, which is often how these sort of multilateral uh, forums, either formal or informal, do get started. If, if you were to sort of imagine a best case scenario where where one did come up, uh, whether it be that through EGAD or through some other means, you know, w- what would you, you know, what would that best case scenario look like given the current uh, state of play? Well, I think there's three three really important things to go, move towards, if you like, a best case scenario, and I think you know the the three are are interrelated, and those are a settlement at least for the conflict, let's say, between the ruling bloc in Addis Ababa and those in Tigray, a successful transition in Sudan to a civilian-led or entirely civilian government, um, and relatedly, of course, a resolution to the tensions of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. I think, you know, Ethiopia is obviously at the heart of many of the troubles that we've spoken about today, and it is certainly true that some kind of elite level understanding, and almost inevitably this will have to be an understanding involving the hardcore of Amhara nationalists as well as the hardcore of Tigrayan nationalists, a kind of joint recognition, if you like, of each other's strength and the fact that um, Ural political order in that part of, of Africa and that part of the world is not possible without each of these important constituent groups. Um, you know, that's essential. And some kind of political solution when it, when it emerges in Ethiopia, I suspect, will have to come from that kind of elite level understanding, whether that will still involve the current prime minister in Addis Ababa, yes or no, is difficult to say. But at the structural level, uh, that will certainly need to happen. Secondly, and relatedly, um, the transition in Sudan, I mean, people still fail, I think, to connect this. But, you know, part of the reason why the transition in Sudan has gone off the rails and why we've seen this reassertion, open reassertion of military influence and power is also in part because of the strengthening of the Sudanese army as a direct result of the crisis in Ethiopia. A lot of people who otherwise, I think, were much more skeptical of the army and even opponents of the army have increasingly come to buy into its arguments about the state at risk of collapsing and at the risk of foreign aggression. Um, If the situation in Ethiopia would evolve in a more positive way and we would indeed be able to see a full transition to civilian rule in Sudan that then begins to address some of the root causes of the problems within that country, 
I think that would give you much more stable foundation for regional order as a whole. And it would be connected, of course, then to hopefully um, helping to resolve some of the tensions about the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam and the management of Nile waters more broadly. Now, these three things in and of themselves would certainly not take care of all the problems in the Horn, far from it. But I think they would draw the sting from some of the most dangerous forces, the forces on the one hand of extreme nationalism, the forces of rapid state integration and militarized politics, um, and the insecurity that instills uh, among a wide uh, range of regional actors as far as Chad and Eritrea, of course, and Somalia, uh, South Sudan, Uganda, etc. So in the best case scenario, we would see progress and interrelated progress on those three fronts. Now, how likely that is to happen uh, until now and the next time you and I talk, Alan, is a question mark. Uh, but let me at least be hopeful here at the end of the year that uh, a concerted push in that direction by by all actors might at least make a difference. Thanks, Harry, for that um, at least attempted optimism there. So, so Charles, you get to close things up for us. Uh, you mentioned in your mind, in some ways, EGAD should perhaps never have moved beyond its desertification and drought mandate before it moved on to some of these peace and security issues. Um, and of course, that's a view that a number of other people also share. So, so what's the path forward? I would say three things. I mean, to to touch on this you know, the original mandate, because if uh, you see, there is, it's an economic uh, crisis. And, 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 you know, the Horn has, uh, you know, because of the climate change crisis and all that, has got uh, um, kind of forms of poverty and uh, difficulties that you don't experience in, uh, for example, you know, uh, you know, the lower East Africa. And it makes me think that we must begin to think of some economic uh, solutions, some instruments that improve there so that I think we need um, to begin, at, at, at least from a common market point of view, to begin thinking how we bring in Sudan and how we bring in Ethiopia and how we bring in Somalia much quicker because they actually pay off, you know, for all their difficulties. You know, the ESC countries have um, still not gone to war with each other and, and they have come very close, but but there is something there, you know, uh, just economic dynamics which are feeding into the politics and creating a stabilization. The second thing is, I think that... Um, both in Africa, but internationally, I think that we need to end the isolation of Eritrea. I think that uh, a less uh, paranoid and a more constructive Eritrea would help stability in the region in, uh, you know, in, in major ways. And, and, and I think uh, uh, Prime Minister B. Ahmed was essentially right to, um, you know, to extend an olive branch to, um, you know, to, to Asmara. And then the third is uh, some very technical things for which we can do with both the AU and uh, and IGAD. I mean, I'm, I don't know what... Okay, I hate the way the UN is set up with the UN Security Council and all that. But I begin to think that when you look at organizations like IGAD and even the AU, I think we need to adopt some element, some very creative element of that, where you have some two, three powerful countries who walk around with a big stick and, uh, you know, kind of knock the rascals on the head and bring 
order. And I think that just in terms of institutional reform and what the way these organizations work, I think that we need to unpack them, we need to deconstruct them and uh, begin to move in, uh, in that direction. So that if you take in the case of IGAD, maybe Kenya should, should be, you know, you know, should be set up that Kenya should have a certain kind of call, should be able to make certain kind of calls because I think it would make a difference. So, and you, you then look wider and you can see how that would benefit um, the, you know, if, uh, if, if we had the big boys there, Nigeria, um, you know, uh, Egypt and uh, two, three, four other people coming together and ganging up against, uh, you know, the rogues, I think we would, we would be in a fairly good place. Thanks, Charles. Um, and, and indeed, many have pointed to climate change and so-called climate security as one area EGAD could find new common ground and relevancy. So, so thanks, everyone. And thanks, everyone, also for listening. Once again, The Horn is a product of the International Crisis Group, and this special episode was produced in partnership with the Friedrich Ebert Foundation, or FES. The Horn is produced by Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi. We'll be back with more after the holidays. 